very exciting book. It's one that's filled with irony, it's filled with suspense, it's got many different plot twists. Uh, sometimes it looks like the villain is about to win. None of us like those sort of stories, do we? But just when it looks like the villain is going to win, it gets turned upside down. And the villain is defeated, and the hero, or heroine in this case, comes out on top. One of the key themes in the book of Esther, and that Callum asked me to highlight, is the hiddenness of God. The fact that God is mostly hidden in this story. God's not mentioned. He's not a, a character in the book. And yet, we can see signs of his presence everywhere. His fingers are all over it, as it were. God is always at work, even though it's hidden and behind the scenes. So this is going to be the, the key theme, the key thing I'm focusing on this morning. So the passage that I was given is Esther chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to Esther chapter 2, verse 18. So we're just going to dive in. I don't have time just to go line by line through the whole of those two passages, uh, two chapters as it were, but let's dive in at the beginning. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At, the time, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So this is where the book begins. It's, Susa is the winter capital of the Persian Empire, and that's in modern-day Iran. And Xerxes is well-known for anyone who's interested in classical history, mainly for his invasion of Greece and the Battle of Thermopylae, where those Greek warriors, you know, the Spartans, stood up against the might of Persia. Anyone seen, you know, the film 300 with Gerard Butler? You know, lots of, you know, topless men running around. That's the film. And the Persian Empire was the largest that the world had yet seen. It went from the Balkans in, in Europe all the way through to India on the other side. Like had Egypt as well and up into Central Asia as well. And the Persians worshipped one all-powerful god whom they called the Wise Lord. And he was locked in a cosmic battle against an evil spirit whom they called the Lie. And when Xerxes arrived in Athens, when, you know, after the battle and everything else, he set all of the temples on fire to destroy the gods who were living in the Greek temples. And in one inscription, he says, By the favor of the wide lords, I destroyed the houses of the demons, and I proclaimed the demons you shall not worship. So this is the gentleman that Esther is going to marry. It's important that we understand the context of that, okay? This is the gentleman who she's going to marry. If we go by the widely accepted timelines, then the book of Esther takes place between two returns back 
to, from Iran and Iraq back to the land of Israel. It's about 25 years before Ezra is sent by the Persian king to go and teach the law to the Jews who live in Israel. So that's setting the scene, okay? So we understand that. Now, there's two major themes throughout all of the scriptures. I think we could probably say that all of the scriptures can be summed up in two big themes, and they are exile, how we're all away from God. All of us find ourselves away from God. And then Exodus, being liberated from that exile and going back to God, going back into the promised land or returning out of exile back to the land of Israel. And these are symbolic. They're, they're stories about your soul. They're stories about my soul. And they tell each of our stories. All of us are separated from God away and need to be liberated out of our captivity back to the promised land. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul writes, For from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's like the grand sweep of all history. Everything's moving away from God and then is built and relies upon God and then ultimately finds its way back to him. It's exile and it's exodus. And Esther takes place in one of these exile periods. It's one of those periods where the people are far away from God. And because they're far away from God, they also feel God is far away from them. So as we dive into the next part of this first chapter, we're told that the Persian king holds a massive party for 180 days. That's quite some party, isn't it? Imagine having to pay for that. The cost would be immense, wouldn't it? All of his nobles, all of his officials, all of the military leaders, you know, just imagine the expense. And we're told in verse 8, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. That's amazing, isn't it? Free, you know, it's, it's already on the bar, isn't it? We've already got it. Anyone can have whatever they want. But it's in this context that we then read what happens next, which is verses 10 through to 12. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, on to eleven, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty with the people, the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendees delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious, and he burned with anger. So here's, you notice that there is a number of references to the number seven. And there are throughout the book of Esther. You notice seven pops up everywhere. And that's because it's a very important number to the Persians. And there were seven sort of royal families, seven families who ruled over the Persian Empire. And the queen usually came from one of these royal families. And here we have Queen Vashti. She refuses to be an object of male attention. In Jewish tradition, she's been summoned 
to parade naked in front of all of the drunken guests of the king. And she refuses the king's command to display herself in such a way. She refuses to be treated as an object rather than a person who has dignity. And her punishment is that she's going to be banished to the harem. She's never again going to leave the palace, never again going to come before the king of Persia. And sometimes in our own lives, we might stand up for what is right, like Queen Vashti does here. And sometimes, like this, it doesn't end well. Sometimes when we do step out, we end up falling or tripping over. Sometimes doing the right thing is a hard thing. It might be a bitter thing. It might be something that actually we really struggle with. Queen Vashti refuses to be treated as an object and is therefore faces the punishment from those in power as a result. In Esther chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, we read this. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of the realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem in the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let beauty treatments be given to them, and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So this is where our heroine is introduced. We, she's introduced as under her, her real name, which is Hadasha. And yet she's carrying a Persian name as well. We're told that Esther is an orphan, that she's living with her cousin, Mordecai. And Esther is definitely, or very probably, still a teenager because she's still under her cousin and under his protection. She hasn't been married off yet to anyone, so she's young. Okay. And Esther is taken along with lots of the other young women to enter this kind of beauty pageant to become the next queen of Persia, Miss Persia 483 BC. But there is something of interest in their names. Mordecai comes from Marduk, the, the chief god of Babylon, and Esther comes from Ishtar, again a Babylonian goddess. They're ethnically Jews, and yet, they're going by Persian names. We read in verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Here they are, hiding their Jewishness whilst living in the land of exile. They're going by Persian names. They're named after the gods of the nations around them. And they're trying to hide the light that God has given them. 
And this can be our own experience in life as well. We can try and blend into the crowd. We don't want to look too different or behave too different from everyone else. We don't want people thinking we're weird because we are Christians. There's a fear, isn't there, that can eat us up, not wanting to be odd or the odd one out. And just as they're hiding their God-given identities, it seems that God is also hiding from them. God is strangely absent from their story. In the year 114 BC, there was a Greek copy of the book of Esther is brought to the Greek king of Egypt, Ptolemy IX, by a Levitical priest, who had come from Jerusalem. And it had a letter attached to the front of it and said, this is about a new festival called Purim, which is what the book of Esther is all about. And Egypt at the time was a, a center of Judaism during the Greek period. They even had their own temple in Heliopolis. And you could go to that temple and then you could go to the temple in Jerusalem. And what's shocking about the Greek version of Esther is that it's been expanded. It's got lots of prayers in it. There's lots of mentions of the Lord, the God of Israel. God is mentioned over 50 times compared to none. And Esther's shown observing the Sabbath, eating, um, refusing to eat non-kosher foods, hiding the fact you know, um, sorry, that she's married to a Gentile, hating that. You know, she's saying, why, God, have you allowed me to be married to this Gentile? In short, for that Greek audience, they made Esther more Jewish. And they lived in a different time. They lived in a different place. And perhaps the Jews living in Egypt couldn't cope with the version that we have in our Bibles of a hidden God a people who are accommodating to the Persian Empire. Where is the Sabbath? Where are the food laws? Where's circumcision? Where is the God of Israel? Where is he? So in verses 15, we read this. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And in verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So here's the first of the many great reversals that we're going to see throughout all of the book of Esther. And you have to, you know, listen to the whole series in order to find out everything else that happens, or you can read it in your own time at home. Um, but we can imagine that this young girl, okay, she's hiding her identity. She's hiding who she is. She's got the name of a goddess, Ishtar, okay, not her own name, Hadasha. And yet, and yet, she's also surrounded by schemes, by plots. Just imagine if you, this is a beauty contest to become the next queen of Persia. Every family is going to want their daughter becoming the next queen, aren't they? 
So there's going to be lots of plots, lots of intrigue of trying to get your daughter selected to be the next one. There's going to be bribing the eunuchs, make sure she has extra beauty treatments, etc. And yet, despite all of that, Esther manages to come out on top. Against all the odds. And yet, who is she marrying? We know his reputation later as the one who burnt down Athens. But she's marrying a man who likes to parade his wife naked to his drunken guests. A man who demands that his wife be objectified rather than treated with dignity as a person in their own right. We can only imagine what's going through Esther's mind when she becomes the queen. She's hiding her identity. And now she's married to a man who might even kill her if she approaches without him first summoning her. Will she be paraded naked before all of his guests? Where's God in any of this? Where was God? And sometimes we also must face the hiddenness of God in our own lives. We go through moments when we feel that life is meaningless. We might fear that we're living an empty life, that we don't have any purpose, we don't have any direction in our own lives. We can be surrounded with the horrors of the world, the things that are on the news all the time, and we question, is God even good? Is God good? Is he as good as he says he is in his word? And yet Esther has to navigate life's challenges without any explicit guidance from God. It's not mentioned. She's not getting dreams or visions or prophecies. No one's speaking a prophetic word over her to say, this is what you've got to do, Esther. She's walking, as it were, blind. She can't see the next moment before her. She has to walk with faith. I think it's important to remember on those big things uh, that according to the New Testament, the ruler or the God of this world is Satan. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that injustice or violence or oppression, not to mention sickness, are the norms. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says this, The time for judging the world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. He adds in John 14, 30, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me. Or John 16, verse 11, Judgment will come. Because the ruler of this world has already been judged. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we're told, For we know that we are the children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. 
or 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So one of the, the reasons why this world is so messed up is because Satan is the ruler of the world. And it's under his control, under his authority, and he's blinding people from seeing the truth. Like Esther, we find ourselves living in a dark kingdom. And we have a choice. Will we take courage and step and go before the, our Persian kings in our own lives? And by that, I mean, you know, patterns of sinful behavior or people in our lives who cause us distress and discomfort. They might be at work, in our families or in our friendship groups or whatever else. But we might have a Persian king in our life that we have to face and that we need courage in order to face them. Now, if we think about Satan just for a moment, if you, he wanted to rebel against God, just imagine that, and get a group of fallen angels together, you're going to form an army, you know, you're going to get together. If God is everywhere, then where do you attack? Where do you attack? If God is the source and the ground of all being, where do you go? How do you dethrone a person who is everywhere present, who's causing all things to exist moment by moment by moment, on whom you yourself are utterly dependent for your own existence? God is enthroned in the hearts of his creatures. So to dethrone God, Satan needs to turn hearts away from God to other things, to created things. And therefore, the fixing of the world is found in enthroning God in our hearts once again, by submitting to God. Okay? Make God the center of all that we are so that we can, our lives can be mirrors to reflect the light of Christ into the world. I don't want to skip too far ahead in Esther's story, because otherwise I'm going to be stealing from everyone else who's going to be coming in the next few weeks. But I do want to go to Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And we read this, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. Now, Esther has a choice. She doesn't know why she became queen. She's living blind, okay? She might not even like being queen. Her husband might be abusive for all we know. He might be treating her the way he treated Queen Vashti as a victim of his lusts and his power. And yet, in the darkness, she's given this advice. Who knows that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
That is to save her people. Okay, if you don't know the end of the story, I'm not going to give it all away, but um, she's there in order to save her people. And we can often face the same dilemmas in our own lives. Uh, We don't have anyone writing our story telling us, oh, this happened to you at this time, in this place, so that this other thing could happen further down the line. We live blind, not knowing the future, only seeing the darkness ahead. We don't have anyone writing the end of our story to look back and say, oh, yeah, that's why that happened to your life. It was for that reason, for that purpose. We don't have that. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But like Esther, we have to take courage in those moments when they come, trusting God is with me, even when we might feel or worry that actually he's not. We have to take courage in those moments, trusting that God is with us, even when perhaps we haven't heard anything from him. There's no prophetic word come. We don't have any guidance, and yet we still have to take a step of faith. It's like that Indiana Jones where he has to step out over the chasm into the invisible bridge. All of us have those moments that we need to take courage. Um, There might be the jobs that we're applying for. It might be the countries that we've had to move to. It might be relationships that we're choosing to invest in. Um, whatever it might be, we might not see God behind all the scenes, moving things, directing our path. We might see nothing and yet take courage. This is Abrahamic faith, to believe that God can raise a dead son to life, to believe that God will give you a son even if your wife is barren. Courage to believe that God is with us, even if we feel or fear perhaps he's not. If we think about the greatest event in all of history, if we think about Good Friday, Easter Sunday, if you had a video camera, and I said there's a video camera up there, just set it up, what would you see? What would you see on that video camera? You might see the public execution of a criminal nailed between two other criminals. What would you see? You would see Jesus, a Jewish man from the Galilee, hung on a cross with a sign above his head in mockery, this man is the king of the Jews. You might see Jesus crying out, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself feels totally and utterly abandoned. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? What do we not see on the video camera? We don't see sin being placed on Christ, do we? We don't. What would you see on the camera to indicate that? Would you? 
Okay, so we're not seeing our sins and our shame being placed on Christ. Do we see death being destroyed by death? Do we see the end of death? You wouldn't see that on the video camera. Would you see God's victory over Satan and over all the powers of the unseen realm? Would you see that on the video camera? What, what would you see? You'd see a man anointed by God who had gone around doing lots of miracles, who only a couple of days before, a week before, had been hailed as king going into Jerusalem. Now dead upon a cross. Only in the light of the resurrection do we see who Jesus really was. The Son of God, the Lord of all creation, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry. It's like he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And I've raised him so that you can see that he is. You know? He wasn't lying. So what about our own stories? If people have a video camera, they set it up, what would they see in our own lives? What would they see? Would they see our illness? Possibly. They'd see our grief, our suffering, our pain, our hardships. They'd catch all those things on camera, wouldn't you? You might even catch us saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, like Christ. But only in light of the resurrection and our own resurrections, do we see what it was all about? We then see Matthew Wimbo, that's myself, I'm using myself as an example, you know, brown hair, brown eyes, all those things you capture on a video camera that chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world in order to become like Christ. Okay? The end makes sense of the present. The future makes sense of our pasts. Only then do we see that God is working behind all of the scenes in order to bring about his purposes in our own lives. In the light of the resurrection, all of things are transformed. All those terrible things that we live through, the terrible purpose is transformed and it's given new meaning. In light of the resurrection, we can see the crucifixion not as a moment of defeat, but as a moment of victory. And we can say there is when death is dead. Okay? There, Satan is disarmed and Christ is victorious. But would you get that on a video camera? It's the same in our lives. Only in the light of the end do you understand. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, Paul writes this. Therefore, we do not despair, even if our physical body is wearing away. And many of us can say amen to that at various times in our lives. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light suffering... This is a man who's multiply been shipwrecked and everything else that happened to the Apostle Paul. Um, is producing for us an eternal weight of 
glory, far beyond all comparison. Because we're not looking at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. So we're called to set our eyes on the eternal, immortal God, the unseen Father, rather than our temporal, visual problems right now. To take courage knowing that it will make sense in the light of the end of history. That all of our trials, all of our burdens were producing for us an eternal weight of glory in our own lives. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 puts the end this way. When all things are subjected to him, that's Christ, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him so that God might be all in all. That's the end of history, when God is all within all. And if he's not all in your life, then one day he will be. That's the purpose of our life, in a way. Slowly having a Godward direction towards him. Okay? All in all. And in the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Whether in heaven, whether on earth, whether under the earth... And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end of history, isn't it? That's the very end of all history is all things in heaven, earth, under the earth, bowing down before the Lord Jesus Christ, giving him honor and glory. Okay, that Christ will reign until every knee bows and offers allegiance to him. So as we finish this morning, I can see parents going to collect their children. I just want to make space just for those who might want to wish to respond to this message. Perhaps you feel trapped in your own darkness, and you might need to take courage this morning. You might not see beyond Tomorrow, You might just face a wall of darkness in front of you and you're struggling to know, is God as good as he says that he is in his word? Perhaps like Esther, you might be hiding your light from those around you and you need to take courage in order to become, go before that Persian king in your own life, whatever that situation might be. Perhaps like Esther, you are living blind and you struggling to say, is God with me in my life? I'm feeling like Jesus, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might not feel that God is with you, directing you, leading you, guiding you. And you might say, God, where are you? And you need courage to believe that if you step out, he will be there with you even though you don't feel him. And perhaps God has laid something else 
on your own heart. So if, that's, if any of that's spoken to you today, just raise your hand because we're going to have the kids come in and I'm just going to share a, a short prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for Esther and her example. And we pray, Lord, that we might be able to have that same courage that Esther had, you know, to step out into the darkness, not knowing the future, but trust that you have called us to this, even if we can't see it, even if we can't understand. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength in order to face our own Persian kings in our own lives, and that you would be guiding and leading us behind the scenes, even if we cannot see you or feel you. Amen.